We have uh, some exciting things to go through today in 2 Kings as we continue our series in 2 Kings. And what we're gonna look at today is the prophet Elisha and some miracles that he performs. And it's just some crazy events that take place. And the first place I wanna start is just give us uh, this encouragement. If you're anything like me, I love a good story. I love a story like the Chronicles of Narnia that you used to read and Lord of the Rings series. And you have these just amazing characters and, and settings and events that take place. And usually a good story will teach you something. It'll give you some type of lesson or something to take away from rather than just being pure entertainment. And the reminder for today that I wanna give is as we look at these miracles of Elisha, they are crazy stories. And I think what can happen sometimes for us, the temptation can be that when we hear an Old Testament story specifically or something that's fought, you know, happened a long time ago and crazy events take place, we can remove ourselves from the narrative. We can just say, oh, that's a cool Bible story. But I wanna remind us today is these are more than just simple Bible stories where cool things happened. This is our narrative as well. We are in this. The same God who we worship today, right now, whose presence is here, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He has not changed from this time when he's done some miraculous things. So I want us to see that as we start here in 2 Kings. And these, we're gonna look at three specific miracles. And the common thread that we see through these miracles is simply the multifaceted mercy of God. And not simply the mercy of God in a sense of God withholds judgment from those that deserve judgment. Yes, that's a central part of mercy. But it goes even deeper to help us see who is God's mercy for? What kind of people does it pursue? How is his mercy manifested? How does his mercy matter for us today? And so we're going to see a tapestry of the mercy of God with Elisha being his instrument We see God's mercy play out in different ways to meet different needs given to people of varying backgrounds and dispositions and from different nations. And as we see his mercy shown here through the miracles of Elisha, what we're doing is we're also being pointed to the perfect prophet. Elisha is the shadow of the one who will come. His name is Jesus. And even what we'll see is a lot of the miracles that Elisha does perform, Jesus will perform later on even to a fuller extent. So that's who Elisha is pointing us to in his miracles pointing us to. So the big idea for today is the miracles of Elisha display for us the unmatched, multifaceted mercy of God. Mercy that is according to his sovereign pleasure and in that mercy, as Jonathan Edwards says, God is graciously pleased to take merciful notice of poor worms in the dust. A mercy that is tenderhearted, compassionate, loving towards those that are undeserving. It's his tenderness of heart toward the needy, the suffering, the faithful, and even his enemies. And so let's dive in and look at the first facet that we see in his miracles of God's mercy. First point is God's mercy is for the undeserving, for those that do not deserve it. What we see in 2 Kings 3 is we see this king Jehoram, and he's the king of Israel in the divided kingdom. If we remember, the kingdom of Israel is divided. We have Israel and we have Judah. 
And Jehoram is the son of Ahab and Jezebel. Remember them, they are not great characters. Ahab was a foolish, wicked king. Jezebel was full on crazy. And the Bible says that Jehoram is evil, but he's less evil than his parents, but he's still evil. And at this time, the nation of Moab is paying a tribute to Israel, basically a fee for Israel having some authority over them. So the king of Moab has to send them livestock and and certain goods and riches every so often. And the king of Moab sees that Ahab is dead. And so he says, I'm not gonna do this anymore. I'm done paying. And Jehoram gets super mad. He gets so mad that he says, I'm gonna bring my army and I'm gonna go march out to Samaria. I'm gonna meet the Moabites and we're gonna destroy them in punishment and punish them for them not paying the tribute anymore. And so this is where we pick up in 2 Kings 3, verse seven. And it says, and he went and sent word to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to battle against Moab? And he said, I will go. I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. So there's an alliance going on in this mission. Then he said, by which way shall we march? And Jehoram answered, by the way of the wilderness of Edom. So the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. And when they had made a circuitous march of seven days, there was no water for the army or for the animals that followed them. So you can already tell Jehoram is not the brightest bulb. He says, let's go march out to the wilderness. Oh, wait, we ran out of water. Like the planning is just terrible. And then he says this, and the king of Israel said, alas, the Lord has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. So now he's playing the victim. It's not my fault. God just wants to kill us. And Jehoshaphat, who's the only one with any intelligence or godliness, he was a godly king. He says, is there no prophet of the Lord here? through whom we may inquire of the Lord. Then one of the king of Israel's servants answered, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here, who poured water on the hands of Elijah. And Jehoshaphat said, the word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. And Elisha said to the king of Israel, what have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and of your mother. But the king of Israel said to him, No, it is the Lord who has called these three kings to give them in the hand of Moab. So just complaining and whining again. And Elisha said, as the Lord of hosts lives before I I stand, whom I stand, were it not that I have regard for Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would neither look at you nor see you. But now bring me a musician, which we all know he picked the drummer to come and play drums for him. Just kidding. And when the musician played, the hand of the Lord came upon him and he said, Thus says the Lord, I will make this dry steam bed full of pools, for thus says the Lord, you shall not see wind or rain, but that steam bed shall be filled with water, so that you shall drink, you, your livestock, and your animals. This is a light thing in the sight of the Lord. I love that. He will also give the Moabites into your hand, and you shall attack every fortified city and every choice city, and shall fell every good tree, and stop up all springs of water, and ruin every good piece of land with stones." The next morning, about the time of the offering to sacrifice, behold, water came from the direction of Edom till the country was filled with water. And so the Lord, in his mercy, gave this undeserving king water, and he does go on to get victory over uh, the Moabites. And now a couple things I want to highlight as as we look at Jehoram. We can look at this story and say, why, why did he save him? He gave him a lifeline. He gave him 
salvation in this wilderness, even though he was wicked and made terrible decisions, we would have applauded probably if he just died out there. But God showed him mercy even when there was no guarantee that Jehoram would turn from his wicked ways, which he doesn't. Later on, Second Kings, we actually see he dies a terrible death. And we can kind of look at this and say, well, yeah, there's no reason why he'd save them. But the thing is, is that we are very much similar to Jehoram. That's who we were before Christ and the real kicker here in this story, if we, if we look at it, is that Jehoshaphat, who's the godly king, what does Elisha say? He says, the only reason that I'm going to save you is because of Jehoshaphat's godliness. Once again, for us, we were undeserving, but the righteousness of Christ and his perfection and his work was attributed to us to receive salvation. Nothing that we have done. I remember in ninth grade, when I was in high school, uh, I did take pride in, in getting good grades. I wanted to get good grades. But like all of us at some point in our schooling life, we have that class. You know that class? That class that we don't want to take, we have no interest in taking, but we got to do it. And so we just march on and just get done with it. That class for me was computer programming in ninth grade. Now, if you're a computer programmer here, props to you. Uh, I don't understand anything about it, and it is a very needed profession, especially today with technology, the way it is. But back then, I was clueless, and I didn't care. I just wanted to get past it. And in that class, I had a couple of friends of mine that knew what was going on. But I just sat in the back of class with them, and we, I just acted like a knucklehead. Just fooled around the whole time, didn't really care, didn't, didn't give a lot of effort. And so the end comes, and the teacher also picked up on this. The teacher was not a George fan. He was not at all. So he saw me as a delinquent. And I'm not proud of this at all. So the last day comes, and he gives the final grades to all the students. And he gives the envelope. Here's your final grade. And I'm opening this thing up. And I'm expecting, you know, C, C minus, something like that. I don't know. And there's a big, fat F. And I'm looking at this thing like, hold on. You're telling me that I gotta take this class over again with a teacher that hates me, with a subject that I hate and don't understand. So I'm like, mm -mm, it's not gonna happen. So I get to work. I start looking at all my grades. I start going like by the hundredth decimals, thousandth decimals to see if the thing will round up. And what I notice is there is a group project that I did, a group project that I joined with my other friends who knew what was going on. I contributed nothing to the project, basically. I was just kind of physically there. And they did help me, and, they, and we got a good grade, but he did not weigh it correctly for me. So when I added it all up, I realized that I passed the class by 0.2%. I'm very happy. So I march up to my teacher's desk, and I said, look, you didn't add it right. You didn't weigh this, the group project right. And he looks at it, and his face turns beet red. And he says to me, I'm going to give you a D, but you don't deserve it. And I turned around and went, success! Which, again, just foolishness. But I did not deserve passing that class. I actually should have failed it. I, I really should have. The only reason that I passed it was because of the intelligence and the effort of my friends. It was attributed to me being a part of that group project. And it may be a silly metaphor, but in the same way, we should not sneer at Jehoram in the wilderness 
Because once again, we're no different than him. We were hard-headed. We were rebellious. We were not God-honoring. We were facing destruction and spiritual starvation in the wilderness of our sin. But God gave us mercy undeserved through Jesus. And the righteousness of Jesus is attributed to us. And we are saved. Titus 3 details this. It says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. That's the type of undeserved mercy that we have received. He looks on Jesus, the perfect God-man who hung on the cross and sees the payment that he paid, and we receive the free reward of escaping the wrath and punishment of God, instead receiving his mercy. And even to, you know, we, we notice that snarky response that Elisha has, right, where he says, it's not because of you, it's because of Jehoshaphat. What's even, what's even amazing is that when we think about Jesus, he does not offer us a snarky response. To a fuller extent, when he gives his mercy, it is his delight, it is his joy, it is his passion to give us his mercy. What a good savior we have, merciful king. Okay, second way we see God's mercy in these miracles is that God's mercy is for those that are full of faith. So in this next miracle, in chapter four, verse eight, we see this godly woman who lives in the land of Shunem. And we don't get her name, but she's called just the Shunammite woman. And the land of Shunem is an area where Elisha goes through on his travels for ministry, goes there frequently. She sees this, and she wants to do an act of mercy for him by showing him hospitality. We think about Romans 12, where Paul says, uh, do acts of mercy cheerfully. And then he goes through this list of all these types of acts of mercy, and one of them is showing hospitality and doing good for the saints. And so she's meticulous in this. She says that she wants to build a small room on, her, on the roof with walls and put there for him a bed, a table, a chair, a lamp. And then whenever he comes through, he can just stay there. There's a place for him to stay. And so Elisha is, is stirred by this merciful act that the Shunammite woman shows him. So Elisha asks her, what can I do for you? Can I give a good word to the king? Can I say something good to the commander of the army? And she says, I dwell among my own people, which means I'm, I'm fine. Like, I have my community. I'm good. You know, I don't need anything. And so Elisha's thinking, and he talks to his servant, Gehazi, which Gehazi's servant who's with Elisha. And he says, well, Elisha, I noticed that he, she doesn't have a son, and her husband is very old. So he goes to her, and he says, you're going to be rewarded for your mercy with a son. The Lord is going to give you a son. And she says, do not deceive me. Please. You can tell when she says that, that she has a desire to have a child, but it never happened. And she ends up having a child. But there, things take a turn. And then we go on to verse 18. Something happens. Let's read chapter four, verse 18. 
When the child had grown, he went out one day to his father among the reapers, and he said to his father, oh, my head, my head. The father said to his servant, carry him to his mother. And when he had lifted him and brought him to his mother, the child sat in her lap till noon, and then he died. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door behind him and went out. And she called her husband and said, send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys that I may quickly go to the man of God and come back again. And he said, why will you go with him today? It is neither new moon nor Sabbath. So he was, he was surprised. Usually you go see a prophet on a religious holiday or, or special day and he's saying, well, why are you gonna go see him on just this regular day? And she answers, all is well. Like, don't, it's fine, don't worry about it. She's not gonna explain. She's just, her eyes, her determination is on getting to Elisha, getting to the man of God, getting to the one who gave her a child by the power of God, showed her mercy in that. If God was merciful with giving me a child, he will be merciful again to give me back my child and fix the situation. And then verse 24, then she saddled the donkey and she said to her servant, urge the animal on. Do not slacken the pace from me unless I tell you. So she set out, and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. When the man of God saw her coming, he said to Gehazi, a servant, look, there is a Shunammite. Run at once to meet her and say to her, is all well with you? Is all well with your husband? Is all well with the child? And she answered, all is well. Again, she's like, I'm not gonna settle for the servant. I'm settling for the master. My eyes are on Elisha, the man of God. And when she came to the mountain to the man of God, she caught hold of his feet. And Gehazi came to push her away, but the man of God said, leave her alone for she is in bitter distress and the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. Then she said, did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, do not deceive me? He said to Gehazi, tie up your garment, take my staff in your hand and go. If you meet anyone, do not greet him. If anyone greets you, do not reply and lay my staff on the face of the child. And the mother of the child said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. Saying to again to Elisha, I'm not gonna leave your side. I'm here for you. You are the holy man of God with power. And the mother of the child, so he rose and followed her and Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff on the face of the child, but there was no sound or sign of life. Therefore he returned to meet him and told him, the child is not awakened. When Elisha came into the house, he saw the child lying dead on his bed. So he went in, shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. Then he went up and lay on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, his hands on his hands. And as he stretched himself upon him, the flesh of the child became warm. And he got up again, walked once back and forth in the house and went up and stretched himself upon him. The child sneezed seven times. And the child opened his eyes. Then he summoned Gehazi and said, call this Shunammite. So he called her. And when she came to him, he said, pick up your son. She came and fell at his feet, bowing to the ground. Then she picked up her son and went out. This is, this is just a crazy story. There's so many things that you can take from it. What I wanna focus on today is specifically the faith of this Shunammite woman. That in the midst of this horrible thing that just happened. She just saw her son die in her arms. She does not panic. She does not lose control. But instead, she looks to the merciful one. She looks and she says, I'm gonna go with everything in me to Elisha. And this story is actually referenced in Hebrews 11. We think about Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 is this chapter that talks about the power of faith. 
And the writer starts in Hebrew 11 by saying, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And then the writer goes through all these Old Testament examples. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been circled for days. Just example after example after example. And then we get to this verse in 1135 and this list of examples of faith and what they received for their faith. It says, women received back their dead by resurrection. This story is referenced in that verse among, with, uh, among other examples of where we see women receiving back their dead from resurrection. We think about in 1 Kings where Elijah raised the widow of Zarephath's son back to life. We think about this story. Then New Testament, Jesus with Lazarus and Mary. Also Jesus, a town three and a half miles from Shunem, a three and a half mile walk. There's a town named Nain. And hundreds of years later, Jesus would also raise a dead boy back to life. And then it gets to this verse in verse 39. And all these, though commended through their faith, so because of her faith, she received mercy, have her son back, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us. What is this better thing? What is the reward of those who have faith in God for salvation that is better than receiving your physical dead back? What kind of mercy is given to those that are full of faith today? Hebrews 12, right after that last passage that I read. Therefore, we just read this whole passage about faith. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Those that have faith in God receive something better than a physical resurrection for their loved ones. They receive mercy that would see the king of heaven step down from his throne in order to suffer for us and who would count it joy to take all our shame, endure our death, enter the grave and defeat death once and for all and take the wrath and judgment of God. That's the kind of mercy those with faith receive, which is us. Something even better than this miracle that we just read. And those who are alive, us, that are able to hear the gospel today, being on this side of the cross, do you realize that we have more access to evidence of God's faithfulness and mercy than those who went before? Even more. And we think about the boy. We were like that boy, spiritually dead, no breath, no heartbeat. Just like Elisha, Jesus fully covered us. Elisha fully identified with the boy's death as he stretched himself over him. And in the same way, Jesus fully identified with our sin and our death by covering us at the cross. The perfect prophet, the perfect miracle worker would do the greatest miracle of all time. Bring those that were destined for eternal death and hell back to life. 
And then we think about the Shunammite woman and her faith in this and the mercy she received for her faith. We need to be like her, that as she just looked at Elisha and said, he's the only one that is the solution to this problem. In the same way that we read in Hebrews 12, to a fuller extent, we need to keep our eyes on Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. And this means that this faith that we have when we look at the founder and perfecter, that no matter what happens to me today in the flesh, no matter what suffering I go through, whatever hardship, I do not hope in this life, even in immense pain, since God provides something better for us. His spirit indwelling in me, new life now, and then the promise of a future resurrection of the dead where I will be with him forever. That is promise, merciful promise. And then through the hardship, through the tears, through our groaning, we know because of his perfect mercy, we can sing a line like we do in that song, Hymn of Heaven, that we sing. And every prayer we prayed in desperation, the songs of faith we sang through doubt and fear that in the end we'll see that it was worth it when he returns to wipe away our tears. We have received the full promise and extent of the mercy of God. We have faith in him. His full deliverance over death, deeper than the physical, receive that mercy for what is promised. And so let us be like the Shunammite woman with full faith, with our eyes set on our merciful king, who is the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who will sustain us to the end and beyond. So God's mercy is for those who are full of faith. The third way we see God's mercy played out in these miracles is that God's mercy is for all people, people of every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every background. In this final miracle we look at in chapter five, what we see here is an interaction between Elisha and a Syrian commander named Naaman. And if we remember, Syria is an enemy of Israel. They have defeated Israel time and time again in battle. They have taken Israelites into slavery. They are an overtly godless nation. They are an idol-worshiping nation, and they are obviously outside of the chosen nation of Israel. And this commander went on a raid and actually kidnapped an Israeli girl to be his wife's servant. And during this time, he's struggling with leprosy. He's just stricken with leprosy. And this Israeli girl who's a servant, basically, you know, she's captive to them. She sees him suffering and shows him mercy by just volunteering information and saying, I know who can heal him. There's a man, a a prophet of God, who has the power to heal. I mean, just how merciful is that of her? Like, you're volunteering helpful information to someone who's, who's kidnapped you, basically. And so, Naaman is desperate, so he decides to go to Israel to see Elisha. He talks to the king of Syria. The king of Syria gives him money and uh, basically a peace offering when he goes to Israel. He goes before the Israeli king and the Israeli king does not respond well. He asks, why are you here? I can't heal you. Elisha hears that Naaman is before the Israeli king. So he says, send him to me, send him to me. And then we pick up here in verse nine of chapter five. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. 
But Naaman was angry and went away saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar and the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. So just a couple of observations here. We see that Naaman is perplexed. He doesn't understand. He brought all, these, all this money like a transactional thing, right? Well, I just pay the king of Israel, he heals me, or it, it can be done through some you know, pr- like ritual or anything. And, and Elisha's saying, no, no, the, this, the simple solution to be clean is just to go wash yourself in this river. That's it. It's free. It doesn't cost anything. And so he goes and does it in his desperation. Now listen to his reaction, to how his heart turns after tasting the mercy of God in this way. He says in verse 15, then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him. And he said, behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. But he said, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. So Naaman said, if not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. For from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any God but the Lord. And so this Syrian, this enemy, this foreigner, this idol worshiper tastes the mercy of God and being healed. And what happens? His heart turns. He says, I'm only gonna worship this God, this merciful God who has healed me, who gave me this gift for free without any transaction taking place. He's the one that I'm gonna worship. And it just reflects the heart of God in his mercy, that he wants his kingdom, he wants his mercy to spread out as far as the east is from the west. Doesn't matter where you're from, what background you have, what you've done in your past. As 2 Timothy 2, 4 says, God is a God who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And in Romans 9, Paul writes, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people there, they will be called sons of the living God. And so what we see is that God's desire is that all would come to repentance doesn't matter if you're Gentile or Jew. doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, powerful or oppressed, the criminal, the thief, the rebel, his enemy, all are not too far from the mercy of God and his desire to see them come to him. He wants to see the idol worshiper change their ways. He wants to see the Muslim come to know him. He wants to see the Satanist come to know him. That's his heart and desire. And I think, One thing that we can also take from this is asking ourselves, who are we like in this miracle? Are we like the Israeli servant girl who even in the midst of being wronged, she sees an opportunity to give mercy 
and she does so. And then the seed that's planted from just giving that information is a complete changing of this Syrian's heart to love the Lord and to worship him. We should not underestimate the times that we show mercy to those that we don't agree with. Further than that, that have wronged us because God can use it and he's called us to do so. And then with Elisha, he doesn't question helping Naaman. Elisha knows the mercy of God is not just for Israel. He knows the heart of God as a father who wants to see all the lost come to him and gather them up in his arms. And he gives a simple remedy, wash and be clean. And again, there's no resume requirement when we come from what we've done, it's available to all. If the lost simply respond to the declaration today of wash and be cleaned in the blood of Christ and you will be healed from the disease of sin. So, see that the mercy of God is for all people. And finally, this whole section, these three chapters end with a warning for us. So right after this, Naaman leaves and we notice that he did not give any of the rewards to Elisha. Elisha said, nope, I don't get paid to do miracles. And Gehazi, Elisha's servant, he decides that he wants some of the spoils. So he runs after Naaman and he lies to Naaman and says, hey, there's some people coming into town. They have some needs. Can you spare some money? And so Naaman gladly obliges and gives him silver. Gehazi pockets it for himself goes back to Elisha. Elisha knows what happened. And Elisha says to him, where have you been? And Gehazi just says, nowhere, he lies. I haven't been anywhere, nope, didn't do anything. Elisha says, because of your greed, because of your pride, you're gonna be punished. And your punishment is that you will have leprosy and your descendants, it will cling to you. And I think the warning for us is this, is that when we look at Gehazi, Gehazi was a servant who was around Elisha a lot. He saw this man of God. He saw him do crazy things. He saw him raise a dead boy to life. He saw him uh, tell Naaman how to be healed from leprosy. He saw these miracles take place. He saw the mercy of God tangibly, physically, yet he still took his mercy for granted and allowed his pride and his greed and his selfishness to take hold and be the priority, and he was punished for it. And so the warning for us today, I think, is this. We come here week after week. We sing songs about the mercy of God and his gospel. We hear the gospel preached. During the week, we probably have Bible study or life group with other believers, and we talk and we pray together. We read, we have devotional times during the week. We listen to worship music. And yet, it's so easy for us to slip into the same attitude that Gehazi has. So easy for us to get distracted with the things of the world, to get distracted with money or possessions or power or authority, all the fleeting treasures. And in that, we end up minimizing the mercy and the gospel of God. So church, we must be on guard for this. We must every day, every waking moment, rehearse the gospel to ourselves. Rehearse it that you don't deserve the mercy of God, that I don't deserve the mercy of God. What we deserve instead is eternal punishment and judgment. But because of the work of Christ, 
and his love and grace and mercy, we instead have received life. It's the most mind-blowing, incredible story and miracle of all time, and it will never be topped. That's what we have to rehearse to ourselves every single day so we do not fall into Gehazi's trap. And it's fitting now that we turn to the table and take communion together and remember the suffering of Christ. As we remember that the mercy came, mercy that we have received came at a great cost. The broken body of Christ, his blood that was spilled for us, those that were undeserving, those that were far off, those that were the Gentile and the idol worshiper, And Ephesians 2 really sums up everything that we've seen today. So I'm going to read it. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. This is what our prayer should be, to grow in our eyes largely. So as we take communion, servers can come forward. As we take communion, if you are here and you are not a believer of Christ, you have not given your life to him, I ask that you allow the cup to pass by as the Lord's Supper is for those that have put their faith in him. But if you are here and you have not accepted Christ, I want to say that the mercy of God is calling you now. The mercy of God is calling you now. doesn't matter what you've done, where you've been, who you are. It's calling you and it's free. And he's beckoning you to come and receive the free gift of salvation. Church, as we meditate, let's just once again give him gratitude for the mercy that he's shown. Thank you.